We're in the book of James, and we're still in chapter 1. We're looking at verses 21 through 25 today. There should be some Bibles around if you want to grab one, or if you want to swipe open your phone, James 1, 21 through 25. Now, the series that we're in is called The Awakening, and this series is about waking up and becoming who God has made you to become. And, well, what we're finding is that there's a new life that you are made to live into. And it's time, James is saying, it's time for you to start living into that new life. It's, it's about this. It's about how not to waste your life. It's about how not to waste the moments that keep passing you by. And it's about how to look at the end of your life when you lie on your deathbed. That you can look back and you can say, that was a life that was well lived. I messed up a bunch along the way, but it was a life that was well lived. And that's what James is after for us. And last week we looked at what it means to wake up to friendship. Meaning, there's a, there's a friend, there's, there's a way for you to be a friend that you ought to be to others. And he showed us what we should be looking for from our friends. And this week we're going to look at this. What happens when you get together with your friends, you sit down at the table, and you open up the Bible? How should you, with your friends, be interacting with Scripture? What should it be doing to you? What, how do you interact with it? What is it supposed to do to you? And what, here, listen to this question, what does it expect from you? Now, that's a strange way to say this. Why would the Bible expect something from it? From us, it's, it's almost as if I'm speaking as if this is alive and active and it's having a relationship with us. And that's exactly what I'm saying. In the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that the Bible is living and active, meaning it has a relationship with us. It's alive and it's with us. So we're learning. Well, here's what it starts doing. It starts searching you out. It starts knowing you. It starts, it becomes your wise teacher that tries you, measures you, convicts you. It starts wrestling with you and fighting with you. And it starts giving you hope and life and love and a community of people that are your friends that are like a family. And so this scripture becomes like a wise old mentor that has left us and gone off to another world, but has somehow found a way to still speak to us today. And so what we're asking today is, what should a community, the church, a community of friends, how should we be interacting with the Bible? How do we engage in it together? So that's what we're at today. James 1, verse 21b through 25. So sometimes when, when you don't read the whole verse, you can say A, B, or C in the verse. So 21b. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, if we go back, look at verse 19. 19 tells us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And even before that, 
It says, my beloved brothers. He's talking about our relationships. So what are we hearing? Well, we're hearing the very words of God, but who are we hearing it from? We're hearing it from our friends. We're hearing it from this community of people. And we have to hear it with, as verse 21 tells us, with humility. And if you do that, the very word of God will be implanted in your soul and will be able to save your soul. Now, here's the question we have to ask. What is the intent of God's word? What is it trying to accomplish? What is its goal? What is its telos? Well, it says to save your souls. What to save your souls from what? Go back to verse 15, and it tells us. It says that here's what's happened. We humans, me, you, we have wandered. And we've wandered to a place that we cannot get back from. We, adventured, we have ventured too far away from Eden, too far away from paradise, and we have found ourselves now lost in the wilderness, unable to find our home. And so now we live in this place of danger where there are thorns and thistles that cut and tear at us. And it's a place of trials and pain and suffering and torment and loss and sickness and sin and death. We're stuck in this wasteland. And, and what James goes on and tells us is that we have brought ourselves to this place. We have done this to ourselves. Why in the world would we do this? Well, he says that there are desires within us. And here's what happens. Death wants us. And God is holding death back from us. But evil wanted to see the image of God within us, the, the beloved of God, corrupted. All of death wanted to swallow up God's crown of creation. And to do that, death needed to get us away from our protector, our father, and our God. And so here's what death does. Death is cunning. Death, is, death throws out, because death can't get to you, goes fishing and throws out a lure. And dangles it around in such a way that makes the desires in us go wild and crazy. And we can't help it. And we take the bait. This is what James said a few, a few verses ago. And then once we take the bait, temptation is impregnated in us. And then once born, that temptation is born, it comes out as sin. And then that sin is this child of sin that grows up eventually and becomes death. And then death scoops you up in the net and carries you off into the pits of hell. And, and what James says is that each temptation, each sin is a slow death. A slow movement in the opposite direction. A slow movement that, that slowly without you being unaware, poisons your minds, deforms your faces, and corrupts your heart. So our friends come along and implant the word of God within us and bring about new life to save our souls. Our friends are the ones who are rescuing us from these nets of death. It's like in the movie Finding Nemo. So Nemo's friend Dory gets stuck in this net and the fishermen of death, the boat of death, have captured her. And so he goes into the net with her, and he says, what we've got to do is swim away from this boat of death. And so they all start swimming. Until eventually, the binding breaks that is holding them into this net and into this boat. And, and that's what our friends are meant to do with us. To speak words to us that save us from this death. From the torrents of hell. 
So our friends bring our, God's word to us. And then, so, so we start interacting with God's word. We start having this relationship with God's word. But, but it's a bit mysterious, this relationship. Well, because it's a relationship. It, it, we, there, we read the Bible and it doesn't fully make sense to us. In fact, I would bet that there are things that you have read in the Bible recently that you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, look, it should be that way because we have the very words of God coming to us, challenging us. If you think that you are going to feel and think and determine everything in your life exactly the way that God would determine, determine it, and he wouldn't bring a word to you that was maybe changed the way you're thinking, then you don't understand God. So what we have to do is we have to learn about God and his word as if we're in a relationship with the word. So, which means we're learning things. So I'm still learning new things about Elise, my wife. We have faced trials together, and I've learned about her through trials. She's learned about me. She knows the best of me and the worst of me. And she's, in a way, like, we've made promises to each other. The very promises that God's word has made to us, where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, we have made those promises to each other. We're not going anywhere, which means we're figuring it out together, which means when we walk through trials, we open up God, the truth of God's word, and we try to figure out, okay, what does this mean for us in our life right now in this moment? We learn to fight for each other. She learns to submit to me when I bring God's word to her, and I learn to submit to her when she brings God's word to me. Now, why would I say this word submit? Because that's the posture that verse 21 tells us to have, a posture of humility, a posture of meekness, which means when she brings God's word to me, I better humble myself because it's under, she is bringing the very authority of God to me, and so I need to sit underneath that. She's bringing the wise old mentor, and I need to hear the words. Now, let me tell you this, husbands and fathers, the Bible very clearly says that you have a role in your, in your marriage and in your family, and that role is for you to be the one who brings God's word into your family. And if your family is not being shaped by God's word and learning from God's word, then that's on you, husband or father. And so what we do then, not only in our families, but now we have to learn the art of doing this with our friends. And so we have to learn to be humble. We have to stop being so prideful. And when our friends bring our word to God's word to us, we submit to it. It's like this three-way relationship between God's word, our friends, and us. This mysterious third person who is there with us when we open up the Bible. And so that means we have to learn how to interact with the Bible in a healthy way with our friends. And the first thing that James tells us to do, he says, look intently into the living word. Now, the word intently here that James uses is the same exact word that is used to describe the way Peter walks into the empty tomb and finds that Jesus is not there. Now, do you think that Peter walks into the tomb, he kind of passes by the details, shrugs his shoulders and says, Jesus isn't here, and then goes about his life unchanged? No way. He walks into the tomb, he notices every single detail, he sees that his grave clothes are there, and he thinks, why in the world is Jesus not here? Who would have taken him, and why would they have taken him? Because the religious leaders of the day knew 
that he said he was going to rise from the grave. They want to kill this Jesus movement. So why would they have taken him? They must have not taken him. Well, could it be that he's really actually risen from the dead? And then he says, well, who is this that I ate with, that I drank with, that I was with for all this time, that I learned from? And then later on, we see Peter just scouring the Old Testament scriptures, trying to see how everything that Jesus said about himself is coming true from the Old Testament to today. And he starts reorienting his entire life around this. He says, he must have really rose from the dead. Well, then what does that mean? How does that change everything? I mean, this is, that's how you got to look through the scriptures intently. And you've got to look through the details with wonder. That's the right way to look at truth because truth reaches beyond this world to allow us to see something that is beyond here. That is the, that is the only way you read the Bible with faith and see beyond what the Bible is telling, beyond the words. So, so here's what it's saying. When you look intently in the Bible, you are looking deeply into the words so you could look beyond the words. You're looking deeply into the details so you can see beyond the details. You're looking deeply into the theology so you could see beyond the theology. See, here's our, here's our problem. We start studying theology and we want to wrap God up in this nice little bow. But the theology is not where it's supposed to stop. Studying the language is a great thing. That's not where it's supposed to stop. Look at the details. Look at who wrote it. Look when they wrote it, why they wrote it. Those are important things, but you have to learn to look beyond that. The words are there to get you to look beyond the words. God's word is like a door that opens up to God himself. Brings you right into the presence of God. The wise mentor has opened the door so you can meet his father. So you look intently with faith at the truth of God, the truth in his words, so that you could see what it's pointing to, what its telos is, what its goal is. And you do that with your friends. And there's something special that happens when you open up the Bible with your friends. You know, you, you're preparing to go and meet with your friends, and you're going to open up the Bible, and you want there to be a good discussion. You want to look at it with wonder, and so you read it beforehand, and you start wondering what it's saying. And then your friends are bringing something to the table too. And as this happens, you're looking at it together. You're prepared. They're prepared. And then they see something that you didn't see. And then that makes your mind blown even more. And this continues to happen. There's something about reading it with your friends. And by the way, we live in a very individualistic culture. We tend to think about the Bible. This is something that I'm supposed to go and discover God alone with. And that's true. You should do that. But this is a book that is meant to be read with your friends. It's like you read these words, and these words lift you to another world. Because the mentor, your wise mentor, has come to tell you about that old world, or that other world, or this ancient world that's also future world that has come. And so it lifts you to this new place. Now, if you, have you ever read the Bible that way? And if you haven't, you don't know what it means to be a Christian. Because the Bible's meant to be read with others and to carry you off into this other world. So if you want to learn to read it that way, you've got to learn to do it with your friends. This is what our discipleship groups are all about. Looking intently into God's word so you can discover the wonders of God and be carried off to see what's beyond the, this world and what's beyond these words to the very presence of God and then you're brought back. 
But when you go and you look with your friends, it says you look intently into something mysterious. It's called the perfect law or the law of liberty. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we think of laws, we think of things that suppress us and stop us from living the way that we want to live. And that's not at all what the law of liberty is. It's amazing. So you go, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. Meaning this. He means, first he means that he's come to meet all of the requirements of the law. He's come to fulfill it, to meet all the requirements of it, and all the punishments that the law brings, he's come to satisfy them. So he came and he lived exactly perfectly the way that you were meant to live. He kept every law perfectly with a pure heart, with a pure motive, with no lustful thought, no unrighteous anger, but lived with a perfect love towards others, even those who wanted him dead. He loved them perfectly. And then, on the cross, as he's being killed, we learn that the wrath of God is satisfied. Meaning all the punishments that were stored up for me and for you were thrown down upon Christ on the cross. The hunger, the wrathful hunger that God has for every injustice satisfied by Christ on the cross. Now, if you're thinking, I don't like the idea of a wrathful God, what you need to understand is that wrath is a product of love. So when Elise was a social worker, she was counseling a, a, a younger kid, and he was having a bad day. And he's, other counselors had to get involved, and he started kicking. And one of the counselors said, Elise is pregnant, stop kicking. And as soon as the counselor said that, this kid kicked her right in the stomach. And, and, and the people, yeah, it was, well, she's okay. Everything's okay. But the, here's the thing. The people who were most angry about it were the people who loved her the most. So wrath is a product of love. So when we treat God's creation, God's people wrong, it stores up wrath that God has for it. Now here's what happens. Instead of that wrath being satisfied against us, it's satisfied on Christ on the cross. And so now you're free from your sin. But that's not the end of the law of liberty. Not only are you justified then by his perfect record and then the punishment's taken away, but not only that, guess what else happens? Well, the perfect law of liberty is trying to help you become who you're meant to become. So I want you to know this. God's given you a new heart with new motives to live in a new way. But you look around this world and it is complex. And it's hard for you to make sense of how you ought to live. So what God does is say, he says, let me teach you what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Let me give you a set of rules to live by that will help you live the way you were meant to live in Eden. Okay, so let me say it this way. This is why the law makes you more free. I got this from a preacher named Tim Keller. He says, a fish is most free in the ocean. So... Sure, a fish could say, you know what, I want to be more free than this. I want to go and live on land. 
I don't want to be confined to these laws and these rules that have been set up for me. And so the fish jumps on the land and it's not going very well. Or for you, if you want to live in the ocean, it's not going to go very well. Eventually you're going to realize this isn't working. I've got to do something else. And what God's law or the scriptures are doing are saying this is how you are meant to live. And life works best when you live this way. So not only is the Bible this story of God rescuing you, but it's also a manual for how to live. It's not just a manual, but it is this manual that will show you how you best operate in this life. And your friends are helping you look into this perfect law of liberty. And after you've looked with wonder with your friends and you are carried off to have glimmers of heaven through his word, immediately you are thrust right back down upon the earth. You're grounded again. And this makes you doers of the word. You're lifted up to, to, to these new heights where you're changed, but then you come back down to the earth and you live a new way with your feet on the ground. So you read it intently with your friends and the door opens and you experience something from God, but then you come back down to the earth and you become a doer of the word, meaning God's word gives you active faith. You're not meant to spend 24-7 in the Bible with your nose stuck in the Bible. You're meant to stop reading it, get up, and go and live a life that reflects what you've just read in the Bible. But you do carry God's word with you. It's now implanted in your soul. It's now been deposited into you by your friends so that now, as you walk away from Scripture with your friends, God's word is singing in the halls of your heart. And you remember it. It's not gone. It doesn't fade. But then what James tells us is, look, you got to hold tightly to God's word and remember it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to close your Bible and those words are going to fade off of the pages. You're going to forget them. You're not going to remember them anymore. So what happened? I mean, why, why were the words lost to you? Because they weren't actually ever implanted in you. Or at least not in that moment. Now, so what happened? What went wrong? Well, here's three potential things that went wrong for you. Your pride didn't allow the words to get in. Or two, you didn't look intently with faith. Or three, you didn't understand what you read. Now, I want to look at this last one. You didn't understand what you read. This is not about intellectually understanding the Bible. This is about hearing with your eyes and your ears of your soul and it being implanted in. So I heard a story of somebody who read, read a book by John Stott called Basic Christianity. And in it, now this person who read it, like Ivy League scholar smart. So this person read it where John Stott talks about, look, here's what Christianity is. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good Christ was in your faith in him. You don't get to heaven by your works. You get to heaven by faith in Christ. And there's nothing you can do or not do that's going to make God love you more or less. Everything's based off of your faith in Christ. And so this Ivy League scholar woman reads this and she puts the book down and she says, I just don't think I could be good enough to be a Christian. Now she missed it completely. How did that happen? I don't know. 
But it's one of the most common misconceptions about Christianity today is that it is a religion among many where if you are good, God will love you and accept you and you get to go to heaven. And that's nothing about what Christianity is saying. It's a book about you discovering someone that you put your faith in. It's like if, if you look at it that way, you look at it intently in the mirror, but actually you didn't, and you forget what you look like. You forgot what you read because it never really got in. But when you, are, when you do hear the, the words intently with your friends, and they are implanted in your heart, it changes you. You live a new way. It's about having the word of God not forgotten. It's written on your heart. And so you have to be asking this question right now. How in the world do you have the word of God written on your heart? Well, first start off reading it with your friends. Don't go it alone. Second, you have to learn the art of remembering. So it talks about perseverance or steadfastness. Now, you have to understand what this means. You're going to need this in your life as you're walking through life because you're going to be very forgetful. And so when you're feeling like doubt is creeping in and you're not persevering and you keep caving in to the same sin over and over and over again and you can't stop yourself, here's what you do. You look back and you remember these experiences that you've had of God where you knew in that moment he was more real than ever. He was more real than what you see before you. And you knew it in your heart. And you take that moment and you pull it all the way up to today. You remember it because you tell yourself, I knew it then. I'm not feeling it now, but I know that I felt it then. And you take that experience and you move it up to right now. That's the second thing you got to do. The third thing you have to do is you have to keep continuing to tell yourself about this law of liberty. And your friends have to do it too. This is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. You got to feel the truth of it. And when you don't, you don't experience the truth of it, you tell your friends and you say, Look, I'm a mess right now. I can't get to God. It feels really far away. Help me out here. And they fight for you. And they start speaking these words to remind you that this isn't a bunch of phony baloney, but this has really happened. And then you become a doer of the word. But probably the thing that most stops you from having this written on your heart is your pride. And so I want to ask you to do something right now as we're coming to a close. I want to ask you to humble yourself before God. Take all the ways that you think that you've got it all together and that you know what you're doing and you are far better than the people in this room or the person sitting next to you or at least you're not like them or like that person or the person who didn't show up today. At least you're not like them. Take all of that and just wipe it away and stand before the living God naked, knowing your sin, knowing your shame. Humble yourself. And then I want to be a good friend to you and implant the word of life. And so these words I'm about to tell you, let them be a door that opens up so you can see God. So here's what you've got to know. Christ has intently looked upon the tomb of this world, the grave of this world where sin and death reign. And he looked upon it and he saw it. And he saw its grip on you. 
And then he looked at you and he looked intently at you and he searched you and he knew you and he knew your heart and he knew why you were doing the things that you were doing. But he didn't stop there. See, he saw your rebellion and he saw your lust and he saw your deceit and he saw your pride, but then he didn't stop looking. He turned away from looking at you and looking at this word and he, world and he looked intently into his own heart. And there he found his answer of what he would do. He would come and save you. Because that's who he is. That's his character. He's a rescuer. You don't have a God who looks down upon you and laughs as you sin and in your misery and in your shame. He, he's a God who looks down upon you and he wants to do something about it. And so he came to fulfill this law of liberty and he came to fight for you. And what he did is he, he, he rent open the heavens and he came down. And he made himself a servant of sin, a servant of sin and death, meaning he took on sin and death, like he took it and made it his own, even though it was not his. And then, and then he climbs up to the cross. And on the cross, well, the wise mentor came for you. And on the cross, here's what happens. This door that had been opened to him for all of eternity, this door of knowing the Father, this door of Eden, this door of paradise, it was slammed shut in his face. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is for you. He was forsaken so you could be adopted, so you could become his all for you, all for love. And then now you look in the tomb and he's not there. And he's not there because he's risen and he's entered into the tomb of your heart. It was a tomb of sin and death that has now been turned into a river of life because he now dwells there through your faith. And he did this for you because he's your friend. Your friend did that for you. Your friend did that to do away with evil. And your friend died for the evil that you've done. So the question is, why would we continue to play around with the evil that has killed our friend, our best friend? To be a doer of the word leaves everything behind and goes off to live the life we've been meant to live. into a life of obedience, but an obedience that will set you free. So be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And grasp with faith the one who's come for you. In his word, with your friends, doing it all together. Father, I ask that you would make us into people who grasp hold of your word tightly, that we would have a relationship with you through your word. And that we would not just read this and hear these words, but these words would bring us to, to what's behind the words, to you, to beyond the words. God, make us into friends who do this for each other. Church of friendship that's like a family. 
God, we need you. We need your help in this. So I pray that you would awaken friendships in us like this. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.